Let's do a quick introduction. This is not going to be the introduction on every podcast. I don't know how many podcasts or radio shows you listen to, Tom, but I can't stand when they do a three to five minute introduction of ads and retelling. I think if people are going to listen to this, they are going to just want to jump right into the meat of every podcast. I think you're right. I think the I use my finger to move the whatever the little the, dot is. The 30 second, yeah. Yeah, the 30 second fast forward button. So yeah. this is the first official episode. And let's just spend the five minutes that would normally be out in front of every other episode. And when you go to every other episode, we're just going to jump right into it. So you are Tom Charters. You were you wore a bunch of different crowns and titles, but st- your first actual job with the Breeders' Crown was what? I was executive director of the Breeders' Crown. And back back then in 1984, 83, 82, when you guys were putting this all stuff together, the Hamiltonian Society and Breeders' Crown were kind of together, but kind of separate, correct? Well, it's not quite that. I'll go back as far as I, I'm aware of in the I don't know if it was the late spring or summer of 83. They were forming Breeders' Cup and uh, in the thoroughbred business. And Mr. Van Lennep, Fred Van Lennep, along with John Cashman, as I like to say, this was a hot topic on the uh, cocktail circuit in Lexington area. Um, and Van Lennep listened to it, and he got John Cashman and Kirk Green, who was the general manager of the Red Mile, to come up with an idea how, how harness racing could do the same, uh, basically a year-end championship uh, series. And... They produced a, a document, I think it was called the Breeders' Championship, uh, that I've, I've seen, or it's in our files someplace. In the meantime, he wrote to Max Hemp, who was president of the Hamiltonian Society, and in a, a, a letter saying, you know, I think we can do this. I think we, the breeders and stallion owners would support it. And I think the Hamiltonian Society is the group to uh, administer it. Now, Van Lennep was a member. He was a director of the Hamiltonian Society. So the Breeders' Crown concept was kind of flow. It wasn't created by the Hamiltonian Society, but the Hamiltonian Society was the best maybe group to facilitate it and promote it and administer it, right? Like, yeah. I mean, they, I don't know what groups, I mean, you know, it could have been Standard Bar Canada, it could have been USDA, it could have been whatever else that could have been, it could have been its own entity, honestly. Um, but the Hamiltonian Society was best served to function this. Yeah, uh, I mean, the thor- thoroughbreds uh, under the leadership of John Gaines pretty well created their own group. Uh, instead, Van Lennep looked to the Hamiltonian Society, which he was a director, and which many of the uh, major breeders were directors, and thought he'd use that uh, group to to support it. We, they were already administering stakes, including the Hamiltonian and the uh, the Reynolds stake and the Matrons, and and this was going to be. Uh, something new, but something that fit into their administrative capacity uh, easily. So, and the, and the one thing you have, to, you have to know is background. John Gaines, who was the thoroughbred breeder that create, was instrumental in starting the Breeders' Cup, he had a background in harness racing. His father was a major harness racing owner. John had owned horses. He had a horse win the Hamiltonian, Speedy Streak. And so he was familiar. The basis of this was going to be stallion nominations where where horses 
become eligible to race initially by the nomination of their stallion in what's called futurity staking. So, and that's something not novel in, in thoroughbred racing, but it would be certainly outside the norm. So they were asking people to nominate a stallion and then years down the line when that foal after it's been conceived and sold, or born and sold, and going to uh, the racetrack, the the nomination began uh, several years before. And Van Lannep, that's something we do with all our stakes. Uh, anyway, so there was a he already had a certain connection. He reached back to that. And when Van Lennep and John got to thinking about it, they engaged, as I said, Kurt Green. Then they engaged, once Max Hemp agreed to it, and I assume he did that through with the executive committee's approval, they brought a man named George Alexander on board. George Alexander owned Chestnut Farms. Uh, he was also the secretary of the... Hamiltonian Society, and was always instrumental in writing conditions for races. So trying to, you know, they laid pen to paper and, and came up with a, a format that they thought would work in harness racing. So there was a bunch of work. How much work would you say was done before you were actually or before they even thought, okay, well, we need we need somebody to run this thing on its own. I, I don't know when they decided that. At this point in time, I was in Macau, half, literally halfway around the world. At, at those fancy casinos playing Baccarat? <laughs> uh, there weren't any fancy casinos. <laughs> oh, there weren't? Okay. There, was, there was two or three in Macau, you know, and, and the racetrack and the dog track. So it was a long way from what it is today. But uh, they, they developed a format for this uh, series. And then the average, I think it was September of 83, they actually took nominations for the first time for Breeders' Crown Number 1. And they also came up with a scheme that they wouldn't have to wait to those foals that were conceived uh, in 1984, the next breeding season. They, they could get it kicked off right away by doing partial nominations. It almost seems like, yeah, you, you need a two or three year kind of Kickstarter because, yeah, you can't just uh, take nominations for that year because you... This is a two to three year buildup of purses Correct. and nominations. And so you almost had to plan all the way through to almost 86. So they were wise enough to create this stopgap condition. And in addition, they, they took payments on stallions and they did also put these. Initially, there were eight races, one for every uh, base on two-year-olds and three-year-olds, uh, trotters and pacers. So, so they uh, bid these out and try and to get eight racetracks which could uh, support the events. So they, it was set up. Uh, that was done, I want to say, by October or November of 83. Now, Van Lennep uh, Castle, uh, Fred Van Lennep was, uh, his family owned Castleton Farm and Castleton Industries, which owned a number of racetracks, both in the Detroit area uh, and Pompano Park. And he was also one of the, on the board of the uh, Red Mile. Lexington Trots Breeders Association. So his idea from the start was let's create a races not in one site 
like Breeders' Cup, but let's spread them around a little bit where we can create about two months of, of enthusiasm and boost uh, business at help a lot of tracks go all of and so by the time uh by the end of december you had all this you had a pool of money you had conditions published that would uh, create that were basically uh early closers on the stopgap races years and and you had the stakes going out so a lot was laid down in terms of getting this thing up and rolling. Um, in the meantime, I had, back in Macau, I, my contract had actually run out, but I agreed to stay. I had bid on and got the approval of the World Trotting Association to hold the World Driving Championship in Macau. So I told the people I worked for I would stay on till then. And that was going to be, I think it was around the first part of December. We actually had the World Driving Championship in Macau. In Macau. I mean, in that Macau. just. Do they still have harness racing there or is it just. No. No. no they, they have. A, it's a thoroughbred track now, as far as I know. Uh, but that's a whole other chapter. So I'm I'm in Macau, and my con uh, I stayed on. Uh, Mick Myers came from America. He took over the race director of racing job, race secretary job, and I got on a plane to come back. Uh, I actually came. I didn't come directly back. I went by way of Africa, simply because I always wanted to go to Africa. <laughs> so, wait, wait, so, okay. So, well, on, on a globe, it looks like it's on the way. They're, they're, <laughs> so they're, they're coming up with this innovative uh, Breeders' Crown concept, and I don't even know if it was named Breeders' Championship. And you're obviously on the short list of people who are interested. You know, they, they yeah, obviously... I I don't know what the short list looked like if there was a short list. If there was a short list. And you're just so in I, Macau, you're world traveling, you're going to Africa on the way back. Just, man, I'll, I'll get to yeah. it when I get to it. Got home, had a couple people, when people found out I was coming back, I had a, a Dick O'Donnell wanted me to come to uh, uh, Free State and interview for the race secretary job there. Uh, and uh, I think Gary Buxton wanted me to come to Louisville Downs and talk to them. Um, and I'd been home a couple days. I got a call from Delvin Miller, who I'd worked for as a groom, as well as uh, he was uh, involved with the Meadows, and he... Uh, he had actually nominated me for the assistant race secretary's job in the Meadows back in 75. So I transitioned from a groom for Miller to assistant race secretary to race secretary and then went to Macau for 18 months. Um, so I, I did have some contacts, but I didn't really have a job. And about the second day I was home, I got a call from, uh, I can't remember now whether it was Delvin or Andy Grant, but first, Delvin, Delvin's call was, you back, what are you doing? Uh, there's a job coming up I think you'd be perfect for. Delvin was the director of the Hamiltonian Society, uh, and he's... Uh, <laughs> I always joke and say I've I haven't had to apply for a job since I went to work for him because he I, I'm not sure. so anyway uh, uh, within a day or so either way Andy Grant uh, who was also a director of the Hamiltonian Society called me and said 
you know, I hope sure hope you apply for that job. I think it, you'd be good for it. I had only known Andy, uh, you know, th through working for Delvin. His father was a major owner for Delvin Hugh Grant Sr. And uh, so I was lucky in that regard. I should say, Delvin's first question was, did you get my Christmas card? And I didn't because I had left Macau, and by the time the Christmas card got to Macau, I was on my way to uh, home, my, my week and a half or two-week journey coming home. Through Africa. Let's not, don't gloss over that point. Just through, just randomly now, through Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Now the Christmas card, which caught up with me probably late January, um, said, Merry Christmas. Don't do anything about a job till you talk to me, Delvin and Mary Lib. <laughs> And I wish I had that Christmas card. I, 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 I was going to say, think about what that would have been like today. It's just a quick email, you know, with an e-card. Oh, yeah. and, and, hey, you know, let's talk about this job. Whereas you're, you're globetrotting and this, this card is trying to follow you, uh, you know, 10,000 miles from Macau I, to Africa back to, back to the U.S. Yeah, about I a was, job. Coincidentally, this week I was on a video call with my secretary from Macau. And we were reminiscing about how difficult or almost archaic, uh, not archaic, but how distant it seemed. I mean, we we had, a, I had a, tele, a teletype or telex machine in my office in Macau. And it was major to send a, an international message uh so it it's uh you know the cost of international calls everything else it, it was just another world and hard to explain to people that are younger than 40. Uh, so anyway the christmas card i told delvin and, and then max they had max Hemp call me uh who was present and said that, they're going to have a special meeting in the Hamiltonian Society. I think it was the last week of of January of '84, uh, and that would I come to Florida to interview for the job. And as far as I know, I'm the only person that that made it that far. If there were other people interested or interviewed, I'm not aware of it. So I flew to Florida. I remember I sat in Finkels, Alan Finkelson's office the entire time uh, that day. And John Cashman came downstairs. And uh, I, I, I did, we didn't know what was happening upstairs. It was a closed meeting. And he started telling me about what we have to do. And I said, well, wait a second, did I get the job? Oh, yeah, you got the job. So as I said, I I didn't, it was on the strength of what people knew about me. There wasn't a normal job interview or, uh, I guess I did have a resume. I always remember I had a resume and I showed it to Cashman. He looked at, glanced at it, and he said, perfect. And I said, come on, John, nobody's perfect. So you were interviewing, you were interviewing for a job you didn't know, and they also really couldn't kind of, because this is a new concept. So even then they couldn't really say, well, oh boy, what kind of skill, what kind of person do we need? Well, I Guess Tom would be good for it. That seem that kind of is what I'm gathering because this is such a new concept that you just sometimes have to throw somebody who's just a good person who could probably handle some a little bit of chaos, a little bit of organization, and who had a good reputation amongst you know horsemen and 
administration people, right? I think you're being far too generous. I think on the strength of Delvin was a was a mover and shaker to the nth degree in this business. I always used to joke and say it was easier to say yes to Delvin than no. (laughs) But between him, Andy Grant, and then Max Hemp, who I actually took care of a horse for Max at one point in my caretaking career, and Max knew, knew me, and then they knew me at the Meadows, uh, but I'm not sure a lot of other people on that board had any idea who Tom Charters was other than maybe seeing his name in the list of officials in the Meadows program. Okay. I think my, my peers knew me as far as other race secretaries. Sure. But it was, again, I think it was the strength of Delvin and Andy and, of course, Max that was that was a pretty strong hand. So, boom, you're hired. Did they say, boom, you're hired? All right, let's talk about this Breeders' Championship concept. Or was it, did they, were they still kind of um, hidden about the idea until maybe they had, did they have you do other work first within the Hamiltonian Society to make sure that no, you were? No, no. I was hired. There was uh, the Hamiltonian Society Administrative Office which Mrs. Bell ran in Lexington. And she paid all the bills, including the Breeders' Crown bills. And I was hired simply as the executive director of the Breeders' Crown, whatever that meant. Right, exactly, whatever, whatever that meant. So you've got... You've got and they- in fact, so the next plan was that I relocate to Lexington and I lived in the Campbell house for a month or so and uh, had they gave me a office in a closet at the Red Mile a storage room in the clubhouse of the Red Mile and I had to proceed to uh, establish contact with the eight tracks that had been selected and also, Mrs. Bell's office handled the the nominations and the money at that point. Okay. And I also had to get with, they had hired an ad agency in New York, Robert Landau Company, which also was the agency for Breeders' Cup. Oh, so they were kind of already similar with the idea and how things were going to work. Uh, Yeah, they probably thought it was more like the Breeders' Cup than it was. But the idea was that they'd obtain television, sell the television rights, and take the rights money that was raised by these eight tracks that were each assessed $25,000. So we we had a a working budget. Go So I was to kind of coordinate those. You know, when I took the job, I didn't even have a salary. I called Max Hampton and he said, I suppose we'll have to pay you. And we kind of hashed out. He asked me what I was making in Macau and what I was making, what I thought I should make. And so it was, I mean, it was uh, kind of flying by the seat of my pants. But going back to, it was worth it going back to Lexington because that's where I went to school. So, okay. So, so when you get there, you the the house is that kind of the foundation's already built. The nominate the the Hamiltonian Society is already set up for nominations from other you know uh, stakes that they've been doing. So they're no, confident. No, the the money. Well, the administration was right. That, yeah. yeah, that's that's what I mean. Like they they're confident that they could easily handle these. Breeders' Crown payments and nominations and all that fun stuff. Well, they had some, you know, um, basic rules about staking that they applied in terms of advertising in the uh, trade papers, and and they had the enthusiasm. 
the three major breeders as far as stallion owners at that time were uh, Castleton Farm, Lanelo Bell Farm, and Hanover Shoe Farm. And they were very adversarial. They were? Uh, oh, yes. They well, were. You're, you're, you're asking them to give money. Why would they give money? They've already got well, money. Well, but <laughs> it, it was, it was a, a real landmark that these three plus other breeders with uh, got in the same room. And I mean, they'd, I don't mean they were fighting tooth and nail, but they, like I said, it was a, they were uh, adversarial. In fact, to get those first three plus hemp farms and uh, get them all on the same page and uh, on this was, was a major accomplishment. Was that something you did or something that no. was already kind of done before I, you got I, there? I would credit Max and Andy Grant, who Andy had, Andy, I think, had contacts with, you know, uh, Andy didn't own a farm, so he, he had a certain amount of neutrality, and, uh, but he, they all looked at it, especially Breeders' Cup was sailing along at this point, and they saw it was a, an opportunity. The television world was changing. It was really, I think, about one of the first years of ESPN. And so the, the, all the workings were, were there as far as getting the thing going, and they just needed somebody to liaison with the tracks uh, give some direction as far as what was expected. And that's what I mean about the house was kind of like the foundation was laid um, for you. It's not like you had to come in there and, and landscape and level everything and figure out this stuff was already the breeders being on board was probably a major step. That could be the concrete. You know, that's the we got that situated. We've got some studs up. We've got some, you know, for we've got a couple of floors now you just had to go in there and kind of start drywalling and start painting and start hanging pictures and stuff like that did you we've got the breeders set up we've got the nominations and the payments and how all that's going to be set up through the hamiltonian society was the the idea of eight tracks that was set were the eight tracks picked before you got there, or did you have to kind yeah, of the, form? Okay, so the eight tracks were picked. It's my recollection. Away. There are probably about, tw uh, I want to say, fifteen to twenty tracks that applied. Okay. There were eight tra eight tracks that were awarded races. Okay. And so. Uh, Do you know why they were awarded race? Like, what's this concept comes out now? I mean, glaringly, it, the, the, here's the eight tracks. The Red Mile, Mohawk, Meadows, Edmonton, Maywood, Rosecroft, Liberty Bell, and Pompano. Now, the Meadowlands is not on that list. The Meadowlands is hosting the Hamiltonian at this point. How does the Meadowlands not get on this first list? The calendar. They, they wanted to make it a year-end championship. They were going to use the Red Mile to kick it off. Again, there was, I'm sure, uh, everybody loved the Red Mile, even back then. And uh, I'm sure that uh, Van Lennep and Cashman were instrumental, in, but with probably no opposition. And then they wanted to bring it to kind of a finale at Pompano. Okay. Which, and that was pretty much the course of how major stables, you know, come through the Red Mile, come through. And then if you look at it, there's tremendous, or uh, a, a very nice a geographic distribution. Chicago, the original award, uh, Liberty Bell was a replacement, actually, the... Roosevelt Raceway was awarded the, what is it, the Philly Pace first, three-year-old Philly Pace. Uh, we couldn't, once we got down to 
talking with Roosevelt, the management wouldn't sign the contract because... (laughs) And uh, so we moved the race to Freehold, which was in the New York metropolitan area, we felt. That came to not when Freehold burned down. And so then we moved it to Liberty Bell. And in the course of this, uh, we had to get consent from the nominators or the people that had paid into the stakes. And so there were some uh, complications in that first year. But that, if you look at the original distribution there, uh, including Canada, both going to Mohawk, uh, Toronto area, but also going out to Edmonton. And part of the Edmonton thing was Edmonton wanted all eight races and we're going to fly all the horses out there. And the Edmonton uh, was on a, a riding a, a boom, oil boom at the time. And uh, the, the city of Edmonton or... And so that's when they included Edmonton because they wanted to keep them in the... uh, Maybe they wouldn't give them eight races, but just give them one race, and they gave them a a pretty damn good race. Yeah, Um, I mean, and and what you're saying is that the distribution is um, geographically. Like, we're all over the place. We're hitting every major um, area. You know, we're from, like, except for New York, really, because, I mean, you have D.C., Chicago, Florida, Toronto, Kentucky, you know, Pittsburgh, Edmonton. Like, you're hitting every... And remember, they they fully intended to hit New York, to be at Roosevelt. And in the first, I'd say, three years, I mean, we really expanded to even some of the smaller markets and revisit places like, uh, I shouldn't say smaller markets, smaller breeding markets. Sure, like, I mean, you you go to, yeah, Hazel Park and some of the other spots like that. Yeah, we Um, went back to Chicago. We were in Los Angeles, uh, you know, at at La Salle. We, we, so it was, uh, they really tried to, to move it around, uh, so Breeders' Crown brand was familiar to harness racing, and especially where you had track managements that uh, were enthusiastic about it and and wanted it, saw it important to their track. Three-year-old Colt Pace was in Edmonton, right? Now yeah. they didn't know that. The three-year-old Colt Pace was in Edmonton until when? Like January '84. Like I, uh, it would have been uh, released probably late November, early December, when the stakes uh, meeting was uh, held in Florida. The race secretaries, you know, like I said, uh, twenty-five thousand was uh, a major number for even uh, mid to large tracks. And we had to just, we opened the bids every every year. I can't tell you the date, but, and then we had to negotiate kind of a, a date. And even uh, in the early years, we didn't even have to negotiate the, what division they got. People were happy to have the race. People were race. just happy to have They were happy race. to have a breeder's crown. Okay. Especially when the TV came with it. So was who's, whose job was it to... Um, you're, you're saying people... And that's kind of how like the Super Bowl is. You know, WrestleMania. Some of these uh, where you just throw the brand out there and cities are trying to... No, we'll give you... We just want... Any part of that, you know, give us any part of that event and we're happy to have it. 
So you can kind of, you don't have to negotiate all the little details. You can kind of say, all right, you get the Breeders' Crown, you get the two-year-old Philly Trot, even though may, that may be a subpar race. Well, I don't think any of them are sub. That's the one thing the Breeders' Crown established was, look, it's two-year-old Philly Trots in, in some people's mind mean maiden trots. And, and they're not. I mean, when we went to Detroit... I forget what the pool was, but Kenny Marshall, uh, who was a, a mentor and a, a very savvy kind of race secretary, he said it was probably the biggest pool ever bet on a two-year-old Philly trot. It was because it was that race that night and the best, and, and the best of of that division going for a championship. So we were able to do that. Now, I had some uh, racetrack operators who pushed back at either trotters or two-year-olds or something. But you know what? It was in the end the Breeders' Crown managed to, to carry the day. I mean, it's, it's, there are funny ironies that I don't want to go into about that, but they were all superb races or at least promotable races. Sure. So you, yeah. you guys didn't feel like, okay, uh, we got to give Northlands Edmonton this specific race. You were just, hey, uh, they get a Breeders' Crown. Like, did you, did you guys internally discuss which... You know, hey, maybe we got to give Edmonton the three-year-old Colt Pace because three-year-old Colt Pacers probably will travel better than two-year-old trotting fillies. Not necessarily. No, I, I, no, the only consideration, and I can't say what was. I wasn't at that meeting when the when the Breeders' Crown Committee awarded those races and which races, but I will say that I actually got some flack from tracks out east who said why did you give them the best race and I said well I don't know that it's the best race that's and you know you always had that uh possibility the only thing I I can say was a consider system consideration was they didn't put two-year-old trotters on a half mile track okay so that was like your only kind of Structure. If one comes to mind, I'm sure there's people who correct me on that, but uh, and we tried to mix it up year to year, uh, so that that uh, the last time the Breeders' Crown was there, did we? If you had three-year-old filly trotters, that maybe have two-year-old pacers the following year. Okay, so you, you guys really didn't feel like the division was... You kind of were based upon the event as a name brand, saying, no, you get the event, and it's going to be a great race because these are the best horses of that division. It's kind of like, you know, it's similar to, to boxing or mixed martial arts where, hey, listen, we all know the heavyweight is the marquee, but, man, you throw some light heavyweights or some bantamweights in there, it's a different weight class, but that fight's going to be... It different. It's going to look different, but it's going to be just as entertaining sometimes as the yeah. heavyweight. Well, I think I think you're exactly right that the brand was what was important, but there was also a very practical problem. What happens if you have ten races and you only got eight eight tracks that won them at that time when we we're going to a one race at one track, uh, and you had two left over? Yeah, I mean, you know, you never want to tag those one or two left over as as events that you couldn't get uh, get awarded or get rid of. I mean, sure. So it was it was uh, you had to keep a lot of balls in the air till you announced the races, and you didn't overtly promise races to certain tracks or try to now that there was certain disruption to that when you started awarding multiple tracks 
or multiple races to the same track, like in the year when, I mean, uh, Bob Brennan, who owned Garden State Park, he was, he made some grand promises, and I think the committee took a position. Well, let's let's find out what he can do. So they put they put four races, and even among uh, the committee. I'm sure there were certain value races that were valued over other races. I I didn't have that luxury, and I didn't want that luxury. I I I thought of, and I was lucky that that first year. After Nihilator got beat, uh, we had a three-year-old filly trot at Rosecroft. And I said, and whether I should have said it uh, out loud, uh, I said, I think we've seen a horse of the year in the winter tonight, Fancy Crown, who right. who had been had a brilliant season. And the next day, uh, when I got back to the office on Monday, I had uh, uh, some law- lawyers, I, I got a... Federal Express letter threatening my, threatening me from the connections of Nihilator. Oh, I should say the connection, the ownership of Nihilator. And so, uh, but he lost. But, but I, yeah. I was I was responding honestly to what I thought happened and what was going to happen into the year balloting. I mean, I, uh, I don't even think that that's that's promotion right there. Forget about opinions saying. Hey, I think we just saw a horse of the year candidate. Like, like that's promoting your event. That's promoting everything. I can parse it to defend it, but at the same time, that was a balance I had to keep because I had to maintain a job, and even the directors that supported me would... I didn't want to place them in a position to defend me maintaining the job, and I tried to be even-handed. I, I worked for a lot of breeders, a consortium of breeders, uh, you know, the Hamiltonian Society, and it wasn't my job to promote one ownership interest or one stallion interest or one uh, uh, even track interest over another. That was a challenge that I think my personality and background kind of sustained me helped out a little bit when when you guys were setting up so you've got the eight tracks you've got the division each track has its own division now you've got to set up the actual race schedule so what was that also set up because i mean like you said they have the 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 race secretary's meeting and the stakes meeting well when this that first schedule was set i was in macau okay so but in ensuing years and there were many years where I went to the race secretary's meeting, not necessarily close the deal on the, the final calendar. Well, because he, so he, here's an interesting, I'm just going to read you the schedule, right? Friday, October 5th, Kentucky. Now, obviously, you guys had wanted to, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to say, hey, we're going to go to Lexington. We're going to kick this bad boy off. It's going to be the same day as the Kentucky Futurity. Um, and, and this is just, it's going to be a way to, to start this bad boy off. I mean, that's kind of a no brainer in a way because there, and it was a two year old cult trotters, which there was no, was in 1983 or before that, was there a signature two year old cult trot race? Like all these Hamiltonian horses that had won before, did they, was there a signature two year old cult trot race? Well, there's always been a signature cult going back to the horsemen. At Indianapolis in the forties and fifties. Okay. Uh, I, there wasn't a a Peter Houghton or a you know race like that. This right. That, yeah. There there was there was. It's probably a bunch of, you know, mid level stakes races, and yeah. then once the three year old year happens, then you had well the Stanley Dancer, which was the Beacon Course Trot, and some of the other you know the Yonkers Trot. Yeah, some that, of those. I mean th- that was an era. That Joe DeFrank, through the use of multi-payment early closers, 
What he did was he created these events for two-year-olds in all divisions that because of the size of their purse, the venue of the Meadowlands created these super events or uh, uber events for for two-year-olds. It gives them and a that's stamp. Because, that's because of the pool of horses. Right. You get a lot, a lot more and... You know, there's a lot went into that, but it's it fueled the payment and uh, yearling prices. It it uh, created events. Uh, people started emulating that, and then of course the Breeders' Crown shifted the season initially to post Lexington. I'm old enough to remember. You know, there were very few stakes after Lexington. Right. Uh, Consequential stakes. Most people went to Florida or to uh, down south or in their whatever their training site was, winter training. And so, uh, as one old groom used to say, you 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 uh, you go to Lexington, you go pack up after Lexington. You get go to I forget where he said you get a new pair of Hanover shoes for Christmas. And then you start the next year. Exactly. Yeah. And and I would almost assume that all of the, going back to earlier, you're talking about the breeders were adversarial, but probably the selling point which sold them was, hey, we are creating signature races for two-year-olds. One, for you guys to advertise on your own pedigrees. You know, it's another bold, you know, my grandmother used to say, where's the bold? Give me the bold and the pedigree. And you're giving a boom, a bold race event to add as a two-year-old. And you're also simultaneously giving owners and trainers another major race as a two-year-old quicker money than having to wait till three-year-old years where you're talking about the Jug and the Hamiltonian and the, you know, the North America Cup and the Meadowlands Pace and all those other races that you got to wait two and a half years before you even see some real money. This is yeah, giving that's everybody... That's true. Yeah. It's giving and, everybody and, some, some money. And another thing, Ryan, look at the purses in that first year. 700000 for Nihilator's race. 700000 The biggest purses are for the two-year-old races. Yeah, yep. And that's simply because of the pool of payments. Because there was nothing else, year, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just, there's a, there, it's a big pool. It's before... Uh, Sire stakes existed, but they didn't really exert their muscle until slots uh, flourished. So it was it was major events. Like I said, Joe Joe established these races. I once asked him how he got the idea for it. And he said he talked to Dave Johnson, who was doing the All American Quarter Horse Futurity for two year olds in on t- on ESPN. And Dave told him it was uh, these multiple payments that these, and they were they were pretty tough payments. And uh, Joe just applied that. Early closers had been around in the rule book prior to that, but not on the scale that Joe dreamed. Joe Joe was a man of vision who. And then people like Barry Hewson applied it at the uh, Ontario Jockey Club, which is now WAG, and and others picked it up uh, on a, and that's how they suddenly you're right, two year olds. Now I was told that there was concern or even objection about kicking this off at Lexington because that would boost somehow boost sales at Lexington. Sure. And, and uh, uh, people that, that were selling to Harrisburg thought they were disadvantaged. But it turned out that it generated funds f- for people to go to Harrisburg. Okay, yeah, uh, even my, yeah, right. Uh, so, I mean, it was a real boost to, I think, breeders. And, and I think it's uh, still a boost because when we... Over the years, when we've gotten in a bind purse-wise, uh, the breeders have stepped up. 
Now, he, here's a question for you. And this go, I, you know, I didn't look into 86 or 87 or 88, but 84 and 85, you look at the schedule, right? And I'm going to read this off to you. Tell me something, if something is, is unique here. First Breeders' Crown Race, Friday, October 5th in Kentucky. The next one, Sunday, October 7th in Mohawk. The next one, Friday, October 12th at the Meadows. Sunday, October 14th at Edmonton. Friday the 19th at Maywood. Friday the 26th at Rosecroft. Saturday the 27th at Liberty Bell. And then Friday, November 16th at Pompano to close out the series. Why, what was the shift from 1984 to now, 2020, even probably going back 20 years? What happened between 1984 and call it 2000 where all of the major races are on Friday nights. Like that, that's an interesting, is that a television uh, kind of dictated? Did ESPN dictate that? Did OTB dictate that? Or was that just the better night than Saturday night? Because now obviously everything is Saturday. Yeah, uh, I think you're right. And I honestly don't recall whether what came first, the chicken or the egg uh, in terms of the calendar. Uh, whether, because I, I, I guess we had a television deal in the works, but it was clear that Saturday night we wouldn't get on for the most part. And uh, Friday had an open time slot. And I want to say it had an open time slot like 10 to 11 which was uh, perfect from the track standpoint. Most tracks want to keep the crowd. And so it was a lot that in Canada, we were televised on TSN. On Sundays, yeah. Mo Mohawk and Edmonton were Sundays. And I think that, that slot, we could get a Sunday slot. I don't remember why we reverted to Saturday for... Uh, Liberty Bell. Liberty Bell. But the Liberty Bell thing was pretty much... Like I said, we had uh, no contract, uh, you know, a track fire, and so right. Plus all the other other challenges involved. So I, I'm just going to have to. I won't spend too much time thinking about it because it was probably just one more one more challenge. Although although college, uh, maybe by that time college football wasn't a true. Yeah, that that's true. Uh, so you're you're partnering you the whole point of this thing one of the going back to earlier was to have this on TV on you know selling ads and all that stuff like that. So did you guys um 84 85 86 you know did you guys go to ESPN and Canada's TSN and say listen uh we got these eight races what time slots can you give us and they come back and say okay well we're going to give you Friday night 10 to 11 and then do you take that to the race secretary's meeting and be like, listen, ESPN has only given us Friday nights 10 to 11, so we got to have the races on Friday? Or was it like, hey, we want to have these eight races and just give us tentative dates and we'll kind of work with the TV? Because you're talking, you know, maybe a year or two in advance to get these TV dates set plus the race dates. So which, were, was there flex on both sides of, of ESPN and the race secretaries? Well, first of all, let's back up just slightly because this whole thing was formulated to get sell TV rights. Right. And by the middle of the summer, the same company that negotiated, I think it was even from the beginning, a long-term TV contract with NBC, came back and told us that not only we couldn't sell rights, but we had to pay the production. Oh, we'd get man. We'd get the slot, but we had to pay the production, which was a lot more inexpensive at that time. But still, it wasn't going to be revenue. It was going to be uh, a co additional cost. Sure. But we were committed to TV. 
it was a unique time, which seems, given the present day, especially this past year, when sports TVs, you know, you can just look at the sports TV log in the tabloids on Friday and see how much is out there. We actually had, were able to produce a show, broadcast it live, and get one and possibly two replays during the following week. Sure. It was a, it was a real, it, they, they were desperate for content. Uh, they were very flexible for content. They, they wanted the content at that point, ESPN did. Well, th- think about this, Tom. At that point, the NBA was not live. The NBA Finals were not live. They weren't. They didn't go live until I think '88 or '89. Like, like this. The NBA Finals were not live. Yet you guys have eight separate events that are live on ESPN. So that's just the kind of going back to 1984. Like that's what that that's the amazing part of you guys are producing eight separate hour long features of live television. I mean, that's just an accomplishment in itself. In its first year, you guys yeah. came out of the box. It, it was remarkable. It took uh, a lot of money. It took the USTA stepping up. Uh, I think that was that year. To, because we've had it. we had a couple of the challenges during the course of the year. One was Landau went bankrupt in late August or September. And we had paid them all this money, our <laughs> operating money up front. Uh, and we had to go back to the directors of the USTA, or directors of the Hamiltonian Society. And there were probably six or eight directors who put up money out of their own pocket, advanced the society to keep the thing going. I mean, it was a remarkable story that. I I wish everybody could appreciate. It was also at that time we found out we weren't going to get any revenue. So we went to the USTA and again, Mr. Van Lennep, who had pledged almost half the money that the board put up, he pledged half of that himself. Oh boy. He, he went to the USTA and made the argument for the... USTA step up, which they did, uh, but it was uh, his. His obviously, he carried a lot of the water on this, and you know I think it's remarkable as far as being one of the all-time heroes of the sport, uh, as much as any great horse or great driver. So we had, like I say, a couple additional challenges during the course of the year that disrupted, but it was the right time to try to break into TV. The production costs were a lot lower than they are now. It was just, it was an optimum time to try to get get to harness racing. And that was also cables uh, starting to come up, uh, MTV, ESPN, all these fledgling cable you know, companies that are just begging for content. And, I mean, it's probably, you know, something like the Breeders' Crown helped Bill at least, like, just give me content. Give me anything. And, obviously, as they, you know, you're saying the production costs are so low because, yeah, these companies are just looking for anything. Now, obviously, fast forward 10 years, ESPN becomes a major you know, a major brand, and you can't exactly, uh, they all of a sudden have all of the leverage. But back in 1984, 85, 86, it's almost like you guys had all the leverage to, con- other than, you know, well, I don't know production much leverage. Cost. I'll never know how much leverage, because that was all done by a guy named Mike Traeger, who's still TV consultant for this society. But we used uh, ESPN talent, uh, Sharon... Uh, Smith, who was their lead uh, uh, horse racing analyst, uh, Kenny Rice, who's still doing Breeders' Cup, was part of that talent. We we had a few false starts with 
that year as far as getting talent. Sharon uh, was fantastic. I, I went back and rewatched these um, these these Breeders' Crowns, all of them, and she was absolutely fantastic. Clear, concise, great she, info. I mean, abs- she was the absolute star. Kenny, maybe a little, I don't know if that was the broadcast style back in the 80s. Obviously, he's gotten a lot better. He was a little stiff, in my opinion. Uh, well, but Sharon, you know, Sharon that was, was fantastic. Unfortunately, that was uh, Sharon, first of all, was first rate uh, professional graduate at Northwestern. Uh, I mean, she was a good journalist. And I'm sorry that uh, she isn't still doing uh, or didn't continue to do uh, television. Kenny, that that was the knock on him from our one of our consultants. And I always laugh. The consultant is kind of long gone. Actually, he's dead, but even when he was just alive and long gone in the sport. But Kenny's still doing Breeders' Cup and something I'm proud of. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a great picture of Kenny and I and, and Sharon uh, going to, when we were at Rosecroft, we went to the, the mall and to the Smithsonian together and had a great time. I, I, had, I had fond memories of the people from those times. 